Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you lovely listeners, to your old-time radio episode. Today I tackled two particularly difficult old-time radio classics from the Crime Classics OTR series. The Aslot family is your first, and your loving son Nero, your second. This series, mates, <laughs> they are difficult. They are random pops and clicks like nobody's business. And in the first episode, the audio literally stops and then restarts the entire episode again. I had to listen to it three times at that point to make sure I wasn't going crazy. So whilst I'm slicing up pops and clicks like a man pulling cards out of a deck of aces, this crazy occurrence with doubling audio popped up and took me by surprise. This one is the first time that an OTR had the guile to pull a sneak attack on me. Both of course have been remastered, with the second episode requiring some significant bass reduction. But other than that, pretty on point when it came to quality. Now before we start, I have a new Patreon supporter, Rue Sparks. Thank you so much for joining the fold. And I gotta say, your last name is awesome. I'll consider creating a character with this name in one of my own stories in the future, for sure. Thanks again, mate. If you want to be like Rue Sparks and support this show, keep it on the air and keep it buzzing, visit www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. Take a look around and see what tier you'd like to join at. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Okay, lovelies, turn the lights off, get cozy, and let's enjoy a blast from the 1940s past. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. <laughs> The sound you hear is that of a grave being dug on a hillside in a lonely section of England in the 17th century. And that was English thunder of the era. And that, a soft English drizzle. Water, earth, sky, elementals. Surrounding, James Alsop. Money clipper, highwayman, father-in-law, grave digger. It'll take him about another hour to finish, and about another hour to give it a corpse. For in that time, James Alsop will add murder to his other attributes. And tonight, my report to you on the Alsop family. How it diminished and grew again. Crime Classics, a new series of true crime stories from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. anymore. 
worry about Christopher? He's not happy with his wife. <laughs> As I said it. He says she is a shrew. And what woman is not? That she's curious. That's a woman Hollis is. That she needs to know what we do. You and I. So she would gossip about it. We are oil women. And money clippers. She would gossip and the law would hear of it. And we would jig from a gallows. It grieves me. It would be a... a terrible thing. Hello, father-in-law. Brother-in-law. I had never been here before. In a workshop before. I thought to clean it. To dust a bit. What are these clippers for? Get out of here. Get out of here before I kill you. She will gossip, Father. Aye. And the law will hear of it. Aye. The gallows. And death. Not for us. To work, William. Sovereigns, and William took the clippings to London Town. And the rest of the night, James Alsop sat with his thoughts. In the false dawn, he came to a conclusion. His daughter-in-law had to go for good. It was a mess. First of all, the English didn't like the Dutch, and the Dutch felt the same about the English, and they were constantly sending each other's frigates to the bottom. The King of England was Charles II, famed for being a member of the Stuart family, for marrying with Catherine Berganza, and for feeling the oranges of one Nell Gwynne. It was, as I have indicated, a yeasty time, foment everywhere. Colonists were going off in every which direction, to America, to India, and to the Caribbees. It was the decade, too, of the great Feathergill hopes, and it was the decade of plague and fire. Let's look again at a corner of it. The year 1673, and the place, the village of Ham, and a woman named Ursula walking through a meadow at dusk. said you should do? I am not sure. 
Therefore? Therefore what? I am willing to take but half the amount of money which you promised me. I promise you a fee, assassin, for the killing of Ursula. I hired your sword for a death. No half payments for work not completed. With no fault of mine. I stuck her with my sword, but she moved quickly away. Then I saw some people who were coming, attracted by her cry. And my son, William, who sent you to me from London, said you were the finest of assassins. Another day, and I'll try again. Go back to London. My pay. I... <laughs> that be your pay. You knock about the head. What you deserve. Get you back to London. What do you think, Father? That your wife is a fortunate one. That the wounds are not grave. The villagers who saw the attacks had a rider in a cloak and mask chased her about the meadow with a sword. For what reason? For what reason I cannot conceive? A mystery. Who would want to do murder on such a fine woman? Huh? Yesterday you called her a witch. Aye, uh, even worse. But I did not mean it. Yeah. As I said, what has happened? A mystery. Who would want to kill her? Oh, your wife is a provoking woman. She walks alone in the meadow or does so. If she ever recovers, I will tell her to do so no more. While I'm gone for the surgeon in Yorkshire, you will take care of my wife, Father. Aye, that I will. I'll watch over your wife. Christopher rode off to Yorkshire. And what with William in London selling coin clippings, James Alsop was left in his house with Ursula, his daughter-in-law. September 9th, and the gathering storm, and this... What? What? Ursula, thirsty, as a body is wont to get when it has been stabbed. What? And the man who could slake her thirst moves, but not toward Ursula. Toward the tool shed for a shovel. Then toward the hill. You know why. That's right. To dig a grave. And while he was digging, you remember it started to rain. And James Alsop lifted his mouth to it because the body is wont to get thirsty when it is digging a grave. But Alsop finished his task, took Shovel back to Tool House, and did what quite a few grave diggers do, even to this day. Marky, another. Journey to where? To work. 
cousin in Scotland. Oh, if I had a drink, Mr. Allsop, I would drink to a safe return. Ah, Parky. Three drinks. One for me, one for the lady, and for yourself, Parky. Yeah. Well, now we will drink to the safe journey and the safe return of my daughter-in-law, Ursula, who goes to visit her cousin in Scotland and who probably will not return for a year or so. shattered by thunder, and the earth, a sea of mud. It was perhaps 300 yards to the hillside, and when James Alsop got there, the grave he had dug was gone, washed away. So, what we've got now is the same pastoral scene in reverse. Cutthroat carrying victim through a big storm back to scene of crime. Cutthroat in a quandary. Yesterday, a man tried to do it while she walked the meadow. I've heard. 
And now you succeeded. I yield a cry from Ursula. I came quick to her, but only in time to see her attacker flee. Flee? How? Through the window, sir. Which window? That one. That one? With no glass in it? Of course, that one. And you're sure of it? Aye. Hmm. Come here. If the thief and murderer escaped through this window, how did he get through the cobweb which covers the opening? Sir, stretched across the window frame is a cobweb, as you see. From side to side, so. From top to bottom, so. Sir, then how did this thief of yours get through it? Sir. You're under arrest, James Allsop. Arrest? For the murder of your daughter-in-law. Charlie? The chains. committed at Colchester Jail. His sons William and Christopher were not to be located. Justice was swift and sure. James Alsop was sentenced and led to the gallows. And as he mounted them, a thing happened. Wait! Wait! In the name of the king! Do not hang that man! A messenger with good news, especially if your name was James Alsop of Ham in the year 1673, and the hangman had just indicated that you stick your neck in a noose. New evidence from London. My cabin. The man who calls himself Topham says he can prove that James Alsop is no murderer. He saw a thief leave the place of murder through the door. Ah, uh, that's the way it was. I forgot. Bring down the accused from the debate. <laughs> still has a dolorous end. Mr. Topham from London turned out to be none other than the missing William Alsop, son of James. He could have stayed in London, safe and alive, so he must have loved his father dearly to have taken such a chance. But the only way he changed history was this. Christopher? Well, he had heard what happened to his wife, so asked himself, why return to Ham? He stayed in Yorkshire, where he met the widow Patricia. She was comely, and the next April they were wed. She made puddings and was an uncurious woman. They lived long and happily, and gave to the world eight Alsops.
The Allsop family, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. In tonight's story, Ben Wright was heard as James. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. Featured in the cast were Herb Butterfield, Ellen Morgan, Betty Harford, Terry Kilburn, Richard Peel, and Raymond Lawrence. Roy Rowan speaks Butterfield, Ellen Morgan, Betty Harford, Terry Kilburn, Richard Peel, and Raymond Lawrence. Roy Rowan speaking. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. The sound you hear is that of a swimmer in the Adriatic Sea. Her name is Agrippina, and the stroke she's using, uh, tis one of the day. According to research, a kind of combination overhand side and flutter kick. Agrippina is quite good at it, too. She being the mother of the Emperor of Rome and having the best instructors in all things. For instance, her swimming instructor told her to roll over on her back and float when she got tired, which she just did. And she was tired all right. She'd been swimming toward shore for the last two hours. Not for laurels, not for prizes, but to save her life. It seems her son had tried to drown her by rigging up a boat whose bottom would fall out, and which did when Agrippina was on it. Sonny's name, Nero. So tonight, my report to you about a mother and son in Rome in the first century A.D., listed in my files as your loving son, Nero. Rome in the year 62 A.D. Nero had been on the throne for eight years and had put on 60 pounds. And no wonder. At 25, he had tasted every sweet from Ethiopia to Britannia and had scouts out for whatever he had missed. I'd better tell you some nice things about Nero before we really get into this. First of all, he had a genuine love for Rome and its people. Oftentimes, Nero would release a thousand birds of every kind, some with Roman money attached to them. He also threw to the people pork and mutton saddles, as well as tickets for grain and togas, and choice seats to concerts, at which he sang. This was the Nero that history forgot. Now, let's have a look at the Nero who is remembered. Scene, dressing room in the Roman Colosseum. Principles, Nero and Seneca, his mentor. Hold high the shield for me, Seneca, so that I may look into it. You look like... what? <laughs> Out with it. Out with it, Seneca. Like a beast of the Nubian plains. Which was my design when I put on the skin of a black leopard. I meant sleek. And you meant handsome? And dangerous. <laughs> Do I frighten you? Yes. With a coward. Oh, Nero. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> the emperor will have great sport today. The crowd will love this novelty. I am beloved, is that not so? The poets sing of it. But listen now, great Nero. I have a thing to speak of. Hand me that broadsword. Here. Ah! <laughs> this sword will be my cause in the arena this day. A beloved Nero. Seneca? This thing I have to speak of. Yes. They say 
hope those about you of importance. They say you grow overly fond of your mother. As I am her son, why not? That she saps you of your wisdom. That she does undue influence upon you. Agrippina's a loving mother. Just so. Too much so. Her mother love saps you of your vigor. What you say is an impiety, Seneca. Lord Nero, be careful of your sword. What more of my mother and me? I repeat only what they say. <laughs> Come, Seneca, lift me into the cage. Yes. Bend down your back so that I can step on it. Yes. <sighs> be brave now, Seneca. I am in a cage. What else is that your brain as concerns my mother? Kill her. For your sake? Because I love her more than you? For the sake of Rome. Which is me. Of course. Have the slaves wheel me into the arena, Seneca. Yes. happened when Nero was rolled into the arena in a cage dressed in a black leopard skin is a fine clue as to the lad's personality. Also in the arena and tied securely to stakes were slaves. Then the cage was sprung open, Nero leaped out with his broadsword and performed whatever ritual came to mind. Later, when the sands of the arena were swept clean and in some places resanded, Nero performed again. This time with stringed lyre in curlets and silken toga. When Nero sweetly strikes his lyre, Apollo strings his bow, and Nero's song is the tongue of fire, while the goddess moon sings low. For Nero is the prince beloved, and Nero is a and so on into the night. He didn't sing well, but he sang loud and long, and he had a special arrangement with the Colosseum guards. Collect the heads of all those who tried to leave while he was singing. It was usually after midnight when Nero finally gave the signal for his audience to go home. Nero was fatigued, and he wanted his mother. History tells us Agrippina had a restorative influence on her son because of the soothing quality of her voice, perhaps of her understanding of the light in her motherly eyes, or just perhaps because of a way she had with rose oil and myrrh. <sighs> Mother. Hush, son. How tired you must be from the day. Let me this soothing of you. Mother. Turn your other shoulder to me, son. So help me, Jupiter, Mother. If you don't let me ask you what... Yes, what is it? What I did today in the arena with the wearing of the leopard skin. What of it, Mother? Terrifying. Hmm? <laughs> what Thanks. else? Exciting. Yes. And what else? Papilla sat beside me. She bit the soft of her hand till blood came in such ecstasy. <laughs> oh, Mother, Papilla's always biting the soft of her hand when she sees me. <laughs> She's fond of you. 
Why do you laugh? <laughs> Last night, Papilla painted her face in ochre and went to the Oracle. <laughs> She's afraid Acte, the slave girl from Germania, has taken a place in my affection. Has she? Acte opened her veins this noon because I demanded it, and Papilla doesn't know it yet. <laughs> I know it might have. Well, not that much. Papilla is waiting for you, isn't she? Oh, of course she is. What does she say of me? We hardly talk, Mother. I sing to her, and then we stare at each other. Ah, oh, thank Jupiter for us. But Seneca talks to you, doesn't he? Hand me that garland, Mother. Doesn't he? No, much. Constantly, pratingly, ceaselessly without him. Of me? Much. Constantly, pratingly, ceaselessly without him. What does he say? He wants me to kill you. I see. He says you love me too much and have undue influence upon me, therefore you should be dead. Nero, my son. Yes, Mother. Remember that Claudius died suddenly, and for that reason you are emperor. Remember that Claudius died because I wished it. Somehow there was poison, and somehow Claudius died. And remember, too, that rightfully your stepbrother Britannica should sit on the emperor's throne, and remember... Jupiter, that... look at the hourglass. The sand's run out. I'm late. Let me kiss you. Ave, <laughs> my Poppy blossom of slender shaft, of scarlet petal her gaze enthralled. Give thanks to Olympus, give thanks to the gods that season Nero has to her called. Emperor? Wait. today after the pool. And I gazed up at the heavens and the thoughts went through me in a rush. Mm, millions of thoughts and... Bad boy. <sighs> after tonight, this tomorrow. And the being emperor again. And the whisperings and the intrigues. Ah, Papilla, my head swims in thoughts. My poor, 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 poor head. Rested upon me. <sighs> emperor. Yes. Your mother anointed well. Your curlets smell of the dew. <laughs> she hates you, Papilla. I know. She hates Seneca. Because he is wise. <laughs> Papilla. Does not your garland bind your brow? Here, let me take it off. Oh. Ah, gentle Papilla. Seneca is wise, Nero. Do you want my mother dead, too? Only for your sake. How? It is said that Agrippina is anointing her stepson with Britannicus lately. And in private calls him Emperor. All night a Rubicus dwells a witch. Pluto's daughter, Ilgot, is she. Her name is Locusta, 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 horrible witch. From the river of the dead, her Poisons be. Oh, sing no more, Nero. <laughs> I love thee too well, Emperor.
Papia wasn't the only one who bade him lay down his lyre and steal his song. A man named Petronius did the same thing. He wrote Nero a note and told the emperor that he was the worst singer of all time. Then Petronius, to save a lot of time all the way around, opened his veins. But Papia, being currently Nero's type of love, she got away with it. Also, in Nero's ear, she went on and on about the new Delphic Oracle, who knew the mystery she said like no other oracle in Rome or in the provinces. A younger man, she told Nero, one with younger ideas, one who could conjure voices, speak to the gods, and recognize ancestors in various animals, and very good with the advice. So, Nero kissed her for her concern. <laughs> retrieved his garland, left her. On the way to the Delphic Oracle, he made a decision. And I'll do it now, as long as I've got my mind made up. And he made a detour. Stopped in to see Locusta on the Iter Rubicus, then paid a call on his stepbrother, Britannicus. This vase of wine I bring you, brother, from Gaul. It is where the Rhone flows gently and the grapes grow fat. Oh, great stepbrother, whose love is dear to me and who desires nothing but good for me. For these reasons, I give you this wine that you should drink. Drink it. Like that, boy. Throw back your throat and let the coolness of it... The death of it touch you. And chill you. Come on! Come on! Britannicus has drunk poison and is dead. He hated life and wanted no more of it. called upon the Delphic Oracle. No sooner had the Oracle lighted his pot of fire and said the words, than Nero asked a question. My brother Britannicus is dead. What should be of my mother? Jupiter and those on Olympus are jealous of you, old Caesar Nero. They would smile more brightly upon you if Agrippina were dead and belonged to them. Nero went home to the palace, and the Oracle went into his back room. It is done, Seneca, I have told him. And he will kill his mother? This I believe. How shrewd is Sophia to have sent him to you? This I believe. On the table is a thousand sesterces oracle. I will say words for you into the fire, Seneca. Hail. Hail. went to sleep that night with a new mission in life. He was going to kill his mother. A word about Rome in the year 62 A.D. Rome was in her glory. Her subject people stretched from Asia Minor to Britain, and they paid their taxes on time. A city of slaves and temples and chariot races and visitors from Greece and freedmen from the provinces and spices and oils and unguents. And here and there on the streets, an old Etruscan. The Colosseum was the center of attraction. Here, man fought man, beast fought beast. And on holidays, they switched. Nero was emperor, and you already know how Nero loved to set an example. Agrippina was his mother, and some background on her. 
Out of a maternal concern for her son, she poisoned a lot of people, most prominent of whom, her third husband, the Emperor Claudius. Pliny the Elder, in his letters, mentions her as the vilest of women, and I just quoted. Uh, but Pliny was called in the journals of Tacitus as a sour man, and I just quoted again. Anyhow, her son Nero woke up one morning determined to murder her. So he sent for Locusta of the Iterubicus. Get up the floor, witch, and come close. Here you brought poisons. Vile, sir. Uh, what's this one for? Uh, nephews. Hmm. Uh, and this? Daughters. And this? Mothers. Mothers? Oh, tell me a bit. It is powdered stuff of a thing I know, plucked from a swamp I know, when one night the moon of fertility rode. <laughs> In the eighth month of Octavian, when there was harvest, <laughs> it kills mothers. Quickly, instantly. Uh, without pain. I, I would not like my mother to suffer. Like that. Oh. <laughs> How is it you? Yes, a drop in a sweet meat. <laughs> or whatever. I'll have it. Uh, Seneca! Uh, pay her, Seneca. A thousand sesterces. Seneca, have the wall splashed with sweet-smelling oil to take this reek out. Go, go. And so, Mother, is a small gift of the day in honor of Persephone, sweetmeats from Thebes. Plump dates rolled in cinnamon, stiffened honey from Alexandria, wild berries from the soft slope of Lebanon drowned in sweet essences. <laughs> Which is your favorite, son? Uh, this one, this one. Put it to my lips. First. Yes? I would kiss you, Mother. Persephone's day is a favorite of mine. You'll make it happier. <laughs> then to me. <laughs> <laughs> now here is your walnut sweet. Mm. Oh, it's very good. Excellent. Mm. May I have another? Of course, of course. Here's a choice one's bigger. Ambrosia. The God should know of it. And may I have some of that? What is it? Oh, morsel from the Hebrews. A cluster of almonds chopped with apples and dipped in wine. <laughs> Oh, delicious. Uh, <laughs> mother. What? How do you feel? Blessed by Jupiter who's given me such a fond son. Son. Yes, mother. Eat of your gift. Here, I will place a sweetmeat uh, to your lips. Uh, no, stop. Stop it. Do you ail? Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You ail. Let me hold you, son. Sweet son. Emperor's son. I have here... A translation from a Latin historian named Suetonius. In essence, here's what the gentleman has to say. Thrice, Nero tried to poison his mother with sweetmeats and other devices, but each time, warned of his plan, she suffered herself to swallow antidotes beforehand. 
Nero then planned another method for his mother's destruction. He tampered with the ceiling of her bedroom, contriving a mechanical device for loosening its panels and dropping them upon her while she slept. But this leaked out through some of those connected with the plot, so that Agrippina was warned and slept elsewhere. Imagine Nero's chagrin and fury and petulance. So his mentor, Seneca, came up with a thought. Now, now, the first thing you've got to do is control yourself. Throw that last Grecian urn and get it out of your system. (laughs) I'm glad you did. It was a hideous bit of pottery anyway. (laughs) Now the thought. Write your mother a letter. To say what? Well, you wrote Petronius a letter telling him it would be best for himself and the state to open his veins, did you not? Yes. And he did it. As did Fluvius when you wrote him a letter. And Casper. And and Marius and his three sons and that uh, senator. Lucius lobbed from his mouth of taxes and excesses. And others. Write her. And you will tell me what to say? As before, with the others. Let us do it. And since, Mother, it appears you are trying to have me slain, for the good of all of us and of the state, I, Nero, Emperor, and faithful... You're going too fast. Where are you? Uh, I, Nero. Emperor and faithful son do request your death. This gift I enclose, small knife of gold, for slitting. And sign it, your loving son, Nero. Now put your seal to it, Now have a slave take it over right away. The slave has just now brought me your letter, which needs prompt reply. I will not kill myself, Ollie. Enjoy the banquet. You sang beautifully. That is not what I mean, Mother. What then? No one fell dead at the banquet, Mother. Neither your taste nor mine. I don't want to think about it. I know that. That's why I've arranged this voyage for you. And when you return from Thessaly, you will bring back forgiveness in your heart for me. Son. Yes. Do you still want your mother dead? No. Swear it. By the gods of Olympus. Then my voyage will be joyful. With a new and fleet ship to take you to Golden Sands and return refreshed. I love you well, Nero. You are my love, mother. Ave. Ave. Sail home to me soon. If this tender scene of Ave's and loving kindnesses perplexes you, well, it really shouldn't. Nero was still up to no good. In spite of the sumptuous banquet he had arranged for his mother out of the clear blue sky, and in spite of the trip he had arranged for her to Golden Sands and return by way of a peace offering, Nero still had murder on his mind. This ship he had built for his mother, you know who built it? Anisetus. And who is Anisetus? 
Any of your better histories on triremes and other Roman naval craft will devote at least a few paragraphs to Anicetus. He was forever trying things against the laws of navigation. For instance, this ship that would take Agrippina to Thessaly, he designed it so its bottom would fall out five miles at sea. And did it? Well, let's pick up the ship just before it was five miles out on the Adriatic. Quiet ocean. Azure skies. As fine a two decks of slaves chained to the oars as you'll ever find. And Agrippina having grapes at the captain's table. You men of the sea, Captain. All my life, the great wonder I've had about... What's that? Well, everybody drowned except Agrippina. Not that she was the greatest swimmer in the world, as she only knew one stroke, but she had sense enough to roll over on her back and float when she got tired. So she got to shore. She made known who she was, which got her a fresh toga and transportation back to the palace. Nero was waiting for her. Mother. 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 Slaves, strangle her. And they did, with a silken scarf. It is interesting to note that the word mater in Latin means mother. From mater, we get the word matricide. In just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classics. Your loving son, Nero, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, William Conrad was heard as Nero, and Betty Lou Gerson as Agrippina. Featured in the cast were Sammy Hill, Edgar Barrier, High Everback, and Martha Wentworth. If you went away from home for ten years and returned, what would you expect to find? The answer may unfold for you later tonight when Claire Trevor stars in One Last September. A touching, enchanting, dramatic story on the Lux Summer Theater. Don't miss it later tonight on most of these same CBS radio stations. Stay tuned now for Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. Well, those stories were definitely strange. <laughs> Crime classics always have a unique way of presenting their tales, in a really old-school way with strange narration. This particular set reminded me of a morbid Penny Dreadful tale, which were inexpensive horror stories bought as magazines in the 19th century with really bold characters with strong behaviours, and at times, bizarre motivations. The first tale wasn't as polished, I believe, as the other ones in crime classics, but I feel that it's not due to a lack of well-written dialogue, but instead, damaged audio. Audio that was unable to be recovered and perhaps abandoned completely. But that's only a guess. Whilst the second was crazy, but true, Nero did murder his mother, but I'm not sure about the silken scarf. 
That's what makes crime classics so unique. They're based on facts and events of crime that actually took place, albeit delivered by some interesting narration. <laughs> now, my listeners, time for some equally unique people. It's time for my Patreon thank you stories. Let's go. Maya, Greg, the Clockwork Thief. In the town of Grandol lives a clockwork maker, one known for creating watches of extreme intricacy. Tick tock, they all go, in time and all in unison. And this clockmaker, who at first appears unassuming and only known as Greg, is actually a highly skilled thief, using timing to assist his allies in the thieving underworld to steal from the wealthy one well-timed minute at a time. Greg's connection to the business world by day means that he was able to learn the schedules of his clients, understand their daily routine, and pass this intel on to his thieving runners by night. Each diary learned, each visit marked with information about their lives. Greg feeds that into an information bank of timings and triggers. And each clock is equipped to handle the unique schedule for each client. After all, they are custom clocks. Then, throughout the night, the runners tap into Greg's watches, their timings linked, and by day each thief robs with impunity, without anyone being the wiser. The quietest town robbery you'd ever seen, all based on a well-timed clock. Greg the Clockwork Thief, a master of ingenuity and timing. Solstra, Whisper Willow. As a child, little Willow learned the value of information when she was traded by her family for a secret that would keep their mob clan safe against a larger crime boss. She was used as collateral, initially, but eventually became family and friends with the mobsters. She knew there would be no option but death should she resist this new life that was thrust upon her. She learned how to escape physical problems, untangle the tightest of ropes, and slipping away during times of crisis. But what Willow mastered most was understanding the value of information. The very secret she was traded for, the binding rope that kept her bound to that town and the life that her fate was fused to, became the valued piece of information to set her free. She located and tortured corrupted politicians from her town under the guise of seeking information. She was of course telling the truth, but it was for her own personal information. After finally securing her secret, she whispered it out into the network, from different sources, different parts of a large network like a virus, and the chaos it caused, the power struggles it generated, tore the killer network apart from within. To this day, Whisper Willow stays in the shadows, watching and whispering. Thank you both mates for your support. I wanted to link these tales to how critical information was, Knowledge can be the door that opens pathways previously unknown, or in the case of today's tale, knowledge leads to death. Either way, I hope you enjoyed your tales, you lovelies. And of course, my brilliant white tea warlords, I own cows, Jerry Deepditch. Jerry earned his name as a proactive member of the Assassin's Guild, and strangely enough, a guild that he simply fell into, quite literally. One night, whilst feeding his pet cow, Rigby, on a stroll into the hills. The cow plummeted to its death when the ground gave way to a deeply dug hovel, full of gold and deeds that Jerry had never seen. Naturally, he took them home, only to be tracked down and given an ultimatum by the clan of thieves. 
give it back and work for us, or they'll slow cook him like his cow Rigby. So Jerry moved forcefully into crime. Utilizing his role as a gravedigger, Jerry Deepditch earned his name by burying over 60 thieves, muggers, thugs, and criminal gang members. And not all of them were dead, but he was known for one skill set that set him apart, digging the deepest ditches in half the speed, turning from a hostage in his own right into a skillful crafter of death traps and death cases. To this day, Jerry and his new cow, Jenkins, lives on day by day within the Thieves' Guild and one ditch closer to being free. Lee Bauer, Larry Ledring In the seedy underworld, showing one's face is almost a death sentence in its own right. Knowledge is power, and your individuality, your face, can get you killed. Larry Ledring and his thieves mitigate this risk simply by wearing masks and operating only at night, using engraved lead rings, the kind of killer to display rank and as a currency. You want a hit done on a key politician? That'll be 15 lead rings with the marking Y inscribed upon its surface. Should you need a man beaten then hung, five lead rings with an O and three rings with a cross line through it would be expected at the door of, of Larry Ledring. The rings were earned by way of favors, asks and inquiries, but also deeds carried about in favor of particular underground clans. And one more fact that you need to know when learning of the underground. Should you find a colleague with a lead ring around their neck, keep your distance. For only those that deal with Larry lead rings are killed by Larry's lead rings. A currency and a trade of murder. Mates, I wanted to keep to the theme of codes, information and schemes of murder. A mix of unfortunate accidents and the code of crime. I hope you really enjoyed today's tales, mates, and thank you, as always, for both of your support. Just marvellous. And now, for my old grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow. Thank all of you for being the blood that pumps through this podcast's veins. Every single episode, I'm reminded by your support. And that support pushes me to deliver better content every single episode. Thank you so much for having my back. And a special thank you again to Rue Sparks for joining the podcast as a Patreon supporter. That means the world to me. And if any of you lovelies have a spare couple of seconds, swing on by my iTunes page to leave a review. Every review counts towards finding more lovely people like yourself and I always give shoutouts to those that leave iTunes reviews. Be sure to leave a comment so I can thank you, because that way I see your name in the review and I can thank you publicly on this podcast. Thanks, mates. And as always, till next we meet.